I gave people the means to visit the past and they could learn from it. So they could evolve and transform and better themselves. Instead, they became fixated on their most painful memories, choosing to experience the worst moments of their lives over and over again. And why? Because they were afraid. Afraid that once unburdened by the trauma of the past, they would have no excuse not to move gloriously into the future. Popheads and welcome to issue 59 of 3BZ Presents, the TomCast Popcast, also known as Popcast. I am your host, my name is Tom. Please follow us on the social medias if you don't mind, at TomCast underscore Popcast on Twitter, and at the TomCast underscore Popcast on Instagram. You can also email the show at TomCastPopcast at gmail.com. And finally, you can join Pophead Nation at patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopcast. Thank you to our current Patreons, the Aspen Hill Chody, and the Squidmaster General himself, Brian Broussard. Finally, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you prefer. And if you don't mind, drop us a five-star review. Those go a long way to helping get the word out about our small little independent podcast and uh, help spread the word for us. We, we would really, really appreciate it. So we are here today to talk about the next game-changing installment of HBO's Watchmen series. Uh, before we dive into that... I want to go back just for a second because there was a couple of things I omitted in our discussion of episode six, the Hooded Justice reveal episode. So if, if you haven't listened to that episode or for, if for some reason you don't know what's going on with that, uh, uh, spoiler alerts here, okay? So one of the things I didn't mention was uh, I thought it was pretty interesting with the reveal of, of Will Reeves as Hooded Justice. Uh, that means that, Hooded, that, that Will Reeves was there. Um, he was the one who stopped Eddie Blake from raping Sally Jupiter, uh, the, the, the original Silk Spectre, a.k.a. Lori Blake's mom. Um, now, eventually we find out those two get together, but it was an uh, important scene in the graphic novel, and it was depicted in uh, Zack Snyder's film as well. And in that, in that version of, of Watchmen events in the Snyder film, uh, when Hooded Justice finds the comedian with uh, with uh, Lori bent or not Lori, but with her mother Sally bent over a, a I believe it was a pool table. Um, you hear, you know, obviously Snyder bought into the rumors that they were that they were using in the graphic novel of the Rolf Mueller German circus strongman as Hooded Justice because you hear that that thick German accent from beneath Hooded Justice's mask. So I thought that was an interesting way to kind of look at that scene through new eyes now um, as we know that Will Reeves is the man under that hood this time around. And um, also interesting, uh, I'm sorry, also that we didn't mention, uh, I didn't really talk about the, 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 the moment in which Hooded Justice is sort of born, uh, and that was a, 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 a bit of an oversight on my part. We, we talked about the moment where uh, the firebombing suspect is is out on the streets, and he bumps into Will intentionally to let him know that, hey, you know what, you didn't really do anything, and here I am out on the streets doing whatever I want to do again. 
And this leads to Will realizing that his fellow cops are, are in on this. And this is sort of when he realizes that Cyclops is, is the, uh, a conspiracy within the police force as well. And uh, his fellow officers, um, in order to just kind of scare him into line, they attempt to lynch Will Reeves. They, they hang him up by a, by a tree in the park. You know, the, uh, the rope around his neck. And they, they cut him down, hoping that they've scared him into line. And that he's going to, you know, leave white folks alone, basically. Will, coming back from that moment, still has the, the cut noose around his neck. And he's holding the, the, the more or less bag that they put over his head when they were attempting to lynch him. And that's when he sees um, a, a, a couple being accosted by, by villains, by, by street thugs. And Will's anger just bubbles up. And he's going to take it out on, on these hooligans. He, uh, He's unable to provide any sort... He feels he can't provide justice to people because he's just been told that there is no justice by by his own fellow police officers who've attempted to kill him. And so he punches two holes in that mask, he throws it on, and he starts to dispense his own justice. And that is the moment, the dawn of the vigilante superhero. And uh, it was a that was a drastic omission on my part, and I apologize for that. I also wanted to mention how it was... Interesting. If you go back to, I think it was in episode two or three, when they are, when we see a, a large chunk of the American hero story of, of Hooded Justice's origin, when he's saving folks from robbers in that grocery store. Uh, we need to look at that scene now and compare it to what we saw in episode six, because Hooded Justice makes his de- debut to public to the public, um, fighting Cyclops members in the back of a grocery store, and eventually that brawl spills out into the front of the store. And it is not the uh, that it does not go down the way is depicted in American Hero Story. Again, we're, we're talking about the, that whitewashing of history, the the elimination of of a black man from history and being replaced by a white man that makes white people feel safer. And uh, this is before Hooded Justice was wearing the uh, the makeup around his eyes, I do believe. So even more so, like they could see through the mask and they saw who was there. And finally, the wrap-up of the episode. Um, we, we talked a little bit about it in the previous episode, but I just kind of want to reemphasize the fact that Will Reeves is the catalyst for the events of this series. And, in a lot of senses, the catalyst for the events of the original Minutemen... I'm not sorry, the original Minutemen. The original Watchmen graphic novel. Um, by inspiring two generations of superheroes, I mean, Will's put a lot of things into play. Even if he wasn't directly involved in the events of Watchmen, the graphic novel... His influence is felt. Now, more directly so, in this new series, his, his actions are, A, being revealed for the first time in a new light, um, but we're seeing that uh, maybe he, he may have taken off the mask, but his fight against Cyclops and the Seventh Cavalry and, and the Klan has never stopped. And uh, it, it, um, I know people like to make fun of... It, it's easy to make fun of Batman for a lot of things. <laughs> But it's most important that we remember that Batman doesn't, doesn't, never gives up, right? That's what we've learned from Batman stories, that you never give up. You always get up and keep fighting. And that's what Will's been doing here. So in, in a lot of ways, um, Will realized that the mask wasn't helping with the fight, but he was never going to give up the fight. And it, it's important to note that. All right, enough of my, my omissions and my mistakes from last episode. Let's get into episode seven, okay? This is episode seven, directed by David Semmel, written by... Written by Stacey Osikafor and Claire Keichel. I hope I said your names correctly. 
Episode 7 is titled, An Almost Religious Awe. And that is a line from the comic. It is, it is Dr. Manhattan uh, talking about his time in Vietnam when the, the Viet Cong armies were, were surrendering and they wanted to surrender directly to him because they seemed to have a sense of religious wonder about Dr. Manhattan. And um, they don't come out all right and say a lot of things about religion in this particular episode or in this series. But it, in a lot of ways, and particularly in this episode, it seems that religion has more or less been replaced by Dr. Manhattan. Uh, we see a little bit of a newspaper headline about uh, referring to uh, Rome and the decaying state of religion kind of thing. And it's like because who would go to church when you know exactly where the most powerful being in the universe is? And he's a big blue guy. And he just won America, the Vietnam War. So it, 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 interesting thing to consider. Now, the episode starts, again, as the episode's titled. We open on a, a documentary about John Osterman, about Dr. Manhattan. And it, it shows some of his actions in Vietnam, we get a lot of reference to his origins from the comics and from the films. Eventually, we pull back from that documentary and find ourselves uh, in, in the mid to late 80s as a 10-year-old Angela Ayabar searches among the spinner racks for a movie to watch. Uh, several titles on the video rack uh, are definitely references to things from the graphic novel or to characters from the Minutemen as, as things are kind of playing out a little bit here. Eventually, she finds settles on a movie, Sister Knight, The Nun with a Motherfucking Gun, now, to the, to the naked eye, it would look like this is, oh, cool, this is like a black exploitation picture kind of, kind of vibe. Um, but going a little bit deeper into, into the world of, of this, this, this world of Watchmen, um, and going back to that excellent source of information, that PDPedia page, uh, there is a memorandum posted on that website this week detailing the origins of, of Detective Abar's Sister Night persona. And it, it's a really, really interesting I guess document of history for this for this world that we don't quite understand that's familiar but different, and uh, it, they don't have black exploitation movies in this alternate world. It's called Sister Night belongs to a subgenre of movies called black mask movies, and they are responses or parodies of masked vigilantes. So, okay, this is from directly from the PDPD pages. I'm quoting here. Some were very specific. The Black Superman, for example, was an on-the-nose spoof of Doctor Manhattan. Others, like Sister Night, Tarantula, and Batman were expressions of archetypes forged by the likes of Silhouette, Mothman, or Night Owl. They all provided wish-fulfillment fantasy that doubled as social commentary. Their implicit critique that mass vigilantes were a largely white phenomenon and a problematic one at that is now rather ironic given our discovery that Hooded Justice, the first mass vigilante, was William Reeves, an African-American. So very interesting stuff here. And also in in this document, it provides more history of this world that we're in because it shows that after the Vietnam War, a lot of black Americans moved there. Uh, Again, from the PDPD page, I speak of Vietnam, which has always had its own unique pop culture. For example, the 70s and 80s saw a phenomenon of films made specifically for the large population of African Americans who migrated there after the war to escape the institutional racism of the Nixon era and seek new opportunities in the new frontier. So there was almost like a, like a second westward expansion after we won Vietnam, after America wins, wins the Vietnam War, where, uh, again, black Americans still not feeling like real Americans go somewhere else to get away from the, the, the oppression of a Nixon, Nixon, uh, Nixon-led country. Uh, again, just, just more world-building, more ways to expand on, on what was going on here. 
Um, I'm glad to note that when I speculated that Vietnam might play more heavily into this show, that I was uh, somewhat correct on that. So that's good news. It means I'm not a total doof at analysis and predictive skills. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the show. So young Angela takes this uh, video to her parents. We find out that they are indeed, like this memo documents, living in Saigon. And it is VVN day. So Dr. Manhattan's presence is everywhere. People are in costumes. There's, there's toys, so, items sold in the streets. Um, with giant, uh, not like Macy's Holiday Parade balloons, but you know what I mean. Just ever-present imagery of Dr. Manhattan as, as they seem to be celebrating the victory over the Viet Cong. Uh, important connection to the graphic novel here is that um, it was on v- the eve of VVN in the, co- in the comics as the war was coming to an end, and uh, Dr. Manhattan and Eddie Blake were in, were, in fact, in a bar celebrating the victory. And this is when the comedian, and Dr. Manhattan witnesses the comedian, brutally murder a Vietnamese woman carrying his love child. So there's sort of a mirror there going on as well, because we're about to see Angela's parents get murdered by a suicide bomber. And this is the beginning of Angela's trauma. So it's important that we talk about a little bit about that. We are picking up basically where we left off. When, when episode six ends up, Angela comes out of her coma from Will's memories, and we find that she's with Lady True. Lady True is administering a, a treatment to help, administering a treatment to help flush out Will's memory from her system, from her cerebral cortex. While she's undergoing the treatment, she's going to experience memories of her own. When we're going to, and we as an audience are going to experience uh, the traumas that help shape Angela Ibar. And this is that initial trauma right there, witnessing her parents' death at the hands of a suicide bomber in Saigon, something that is a result of the actions of Dr. Manhattan and of the, of, of the comedian, two characters who, while they have not yet appeared on the show, are looming ever-present in it. Before the suicide bombing comes, uh, it, you know, it, it, young Angela takes the videotape to her, to her parents to get permission to watch it. And they, they, of course they say no. They're not going to let their kid watch that kind of movie. Angela's only 10. But her dad says something that's interesting, and it, it kind of helps shape young Angela for a little while here, is that she tells Angela that, she should be, that we're supposed to be afraid of mass people. This is obviously a reference to Will and the, and the impact that, uh, that Will yelling at him as a boy left on him. After the bombing scene happens, we shift back to the present, and we find Angela where we left her, in, in Lady True's care. She's hooked up to this, this sort of like, a, I think they call it like nouveau dialysis. And she, there's a giant tube running into her arm, and it goes down the hallway. And the assumption is that that tube is hooked up to, uh, to Will, and he's helping to flush her system out of, of his memories. And she seems very desperate to talk to Will, but uh, Lady True's not going to let that happen right now. She says it's not good for the treatment at this point uh, because Will's memories are still so intertwined with her own that seeing Will would, would, probably cause, would potentially cause a, uh, a lapse of identity, and she would you know, she might lose herself further. So is that true? Is that just a way to keep her away from Will? We're not quite sure. So now at this point in the show, we're going to check in on Cal. Cal, he wants to come and check on his wife. So he, he comes to Lady True's facility and runs into Red Scare and Pirate Jenny, who are essentially on guard of the facility, but I suspect they're more there to make sure that Angela doesn't try to escape. And if she does, to then arrest her for her part in uh, the suppression of evidence and the conspiracy to protect Will for the prosecu- prosecution of killing Judd Crawford. So Cal goes to the offices. He gets to the, I'm sorry, Will gets to the guardhouse. Um, he's not admitted. And uh, he has a 
holographic conversation with uh, Lady True's daughter, Bien, where in which she turns him away. Now we check in on Agent Lori Blake. Lori Blake is the one, we find out that Lori is the one who took Angela to Lady True for help because by Lori Blake's rationale, Lady True the one, is the one who designed the drug, so she should know how to help best, which is true. But Lori's got her own things to do now because she has audio recordings of the, of the ramblings, of the speaking that Angela was doing while under the effects of the nostalgia. So she knows now the truth. She knows about Will Reeves, that Will Reeves is hooded justice, that Will Reeves did, in fact, kill Judd Crawford. So she goes to find uh, Crawford's wife and have a bit of a confrontation. But before they get to that confrontation, Blake gets a radio call from Agent Petey, and uh, she sent him out to go find Looking Glass because uh, she was pretty, pretty confident that uh, the way he flipped on Angela so quickly was an indication that he was, in fact, in league with the 7th Cavalry. Now, at the end of Episode 5, you may remember, we left Looking Glass in a precarious position as he had returned home after betraying Angela, after learning that his entire life was built on a lie, and five cavalry members exiting a van, arms, weapons drawn, to go and kill Looking Glass, to kill Wade Tillman. What does Agent PD find in Looking Glass's bunker? Five, quote-unquote, extremely dead 7th Cavalry members. And Wade Tillman, nowhere to be found. Folks, this is episode 7. There are two left. Wade Tillman is now our wildcard player. And if, if the mask wasn't, wasn't evocative enough of the imagery, I think Wade Tillman is now officially our Rorschach for this show. He is now the only person who seems to know the truth. And what is he going to do with that truth? Is he going to sacrifice himself the way Rorschach did at the end of the graphic novel? You know, and I guess sacrifice isn't the right word for Rorschach, but Rorschach makes them kill him. Is Wade going to do the same thing? Is Wade fated to go the same way that Rorschach did? Unknown at this point. So Lori meets with Jane Crawford, and uh, guess what? Surprise, surprise. It's revealed that Jane knew all about everything from the beginning. Lori goes on and on about Judd's role in Cyclops, and it seems... She seems rather surprised to find out that Joan's part of it, especially when Joan activates a trapdoor beneath Laurie's feet, sending her into some kind of basement-holding facility. And that's when she makes a phone call to Senator Joe Keene, also a 7th Cavalry member, but that's not a surprise to us because we've been watching the show, so we know. Also, it was in episode 5. Oh, boy. But there's plans of... Plans are happening. Things are moving fast now. This, is, this show's really moving right now, so you've got to keep paying attention, all right? Before she hit the trap door, though, we, we, we get a little bit of, of a back and forth between Lori and, 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 and Crawford, okay? Where Lori kind of lays out what she thinks is going on. And uh, Crawford's widow uh, decides, decides to share that, you know what? That was going to be the plan for a little while, then they thought of something better. And that's when the trap door hits. So there's more going on here than just political uh, goals for, for Senator Keene. He's got a bigger, much bigger plan in mind, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that later as the show plays out. All right. So then this is an interesting scene here where, where BN comes to administer a test to Angela. Uh, it's a scene very reminiscent of, of Rorschach getting a Rorschach test performed on him in the graphic novel. Interesting use of reflections in BN's glasses as we can see Angela reacting to the test that she's being put through. Uh, it leads to an interesting conversation uh, in which BN asks about the difficulties of parenting 
and having to lie to your children. And she asks a very powerful question at the end of the, of the conversation. Uh, if you don't want your kids to know you're a cop, then why are you a cop? And that triggers another memory. We go back to Saigon. And now we see uh, young Angela. She's in an orphanage slash sweatshop. And the police come to get her because they need her help identifying someone involved in the bombing. And young Angela has no fear about pointing to the man who helped supply the bomber with what he needed to blow up not only her parents, but other, pe- other innocent people as well. Uh, impressed by Angela's bravery, the female officer of the group gives Angela her police badge and says to find her the, when, when she's grown up. This provides a flash of all the characters on this show who have had a badge, good and bad. And it's interesting to note how, how the badge is played on this show and whether each person with a badge is A, good, or B, bad, but also whether they are effective or ineffective in their intention to use that badge to administer real justice to the world. Coming off of this, this, this nostalgia drug, Will's memories are sort of interposed with, with Angela's. And what we're seeing from this is, not, again, one of, those themes that we, one of the themes that we've been hammering home on this show, and that's the show's been hammering home to us as an audience, is legacy. And this legacy of a badge, this legacy of trying to seek justice, it's, it's, gone, it's gone from Will down to his father, or I'm sorry, down to Angela's father, who was in the military, a different sort of justice, I suppose, to Angela herself, who becomes a cop like her grandfather. And it flashes to a scene from episode six, where June telling Will, as he's, as he's donning the, the hooded justice costume for the first, for the, for the first serious go-around, you know, where she's in the loop on what he's doing, she tells him, you're not going to get justice with a badge. You're going to get it with that hood. The, the parallels are striking at this point. Because we see the world in which Angela lives in, and it's a world where justice has a badge and a hood. You know, the, the, these masked police officers in Tulsa are sort of like this twisted embodiment of all of it put together. And there's going to be a reason for that. We're going to get to the reason for that in just a moment. So after Angela's conversation with Bien, we transition now to the trial of Adrian Veidt in his full Ozymandias costume. It has been a year-long trial, and following the pattern of every episode being one year later in Ozymandias' imprisonment, we realize, if you're counting, we're, we're just about at 2019. So his story, his story is about synced up now with the main story going on in Tulsa. Uh, the trial is, it's a, <laughs> I'll be honest, it's a strange scene, but it serves to remind us that, that Vite is responsible for a genocide, not only of the, of the, the beings that he's killing in his imprisonment, but the, the millions that he killed with his uh, hoax squid attack. And it's a reminder, too, that he did this in order to bring about a utopia for mankind that has never come. We also learned that the one rule of his imprisonment is thou shall not leave. These are things that he has broken. He has murdered, and he has attempted to leave. And that is what he stands on trial for. One of the things I thought was interesting about this scene, and since, his, since this character's first appearance on the, on the show, has been this, this mysterious game warden character, who obviously is a Mr. Phillips clone. I, 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 we use clone for describing them since they all look identical. But the fact that he wears a mask is interesting to me. And I, can, I haven't quite connected the symbolism there. But I'm sure there's something going on. Also in this scene to note, too, behind the judge, behind the, the game master judge, 
more symbols from the Black Freighter are, are, are present. Again, very interesting, as this storyline seems to be very much mirroring, or at least seems to be this story's version of that Black Freighter story from the graphic novel. You know, the, the marooned character. Will he get to his destination? Will he be able to do what he's supposed to do? We're not sure yet. Ozymandias offers his, his only defense for his actions by ripping a loud and obnoxious fart into the courtroom. That leaves everyone speechless. Ozzy is found guilty, and as everyone yells at him and points, you know, in a very derisive, guilty, guilty, guilty kind of way, uh, we see a, to- a tear roll down his cheek. Uh, what, what do we think he feels guilty for? Is it for his inability to escape? Is it for the actual murders he's committed? Or does he realize that he's, he's failed? Does he realize that his vision isn't going to come to pass? Does he realize that because of his hubris, he completely missed everything? We're going to find out, I think. <laughs> I mean, for all I know, they're going to leave him up there for the next two episodes. I have no idea. All right, so let's go back to Earth. Angela's sneaking around. Lady True sees what she's up to, and they decide to have lunch. They're eating calamari. That's interesting. Lady True mentions that uh, the Millennium Clock is, is part of her plan to save humanity. And, you know, that's not really something that Angela's buying into. She doesn't really buy into that whole, that whole thing. Here we start getting some information about Cal. Cal's background has been a little bit mysterious up to this point. We don't know a lot about the man, except that he stays very calm, even when Angela's yelling at him. Um, they refer to his accident and that he had total amnesia. You know, Lady True mentions that, you know, memory is something that she has studied intensively in her time. And complete amnesia is extremely rare, unless you're in a soap opera, which is kind of funny because in a way we're sort of in a superhero soap opera right now. So big clues that there's more going on with, with Cal. And we've talked before on the show that there's something going on with Cal. Like we knew something was up, that something was different about this, this particular character because there were certain things that uh, needed some explaining. And it looks like we finally are going to get some explanations here in the next week or two. Through this conversation, we also find out uh, that Vienne is actually Lady True's mother which is also very interesting. And that's what all the memories are about, uh, that, um, you know, the, those memories that, th- that she recalls that when she's dreaming, those nightmares that she's having, that's Lady True giving her mother back her memories. So that instead of just having a genetic clone of her mom, she's going to have her actual mom because the memories, the trauma, the pain that we all have experienced, that's what shapes us, that's what makes us who we are. So having an identical clone of your mom is one thing, but to have your actual mom that person needs to be shaped by those same experiences that, that they had initially experienced. So that's what she's doing. And then we get a mention here. Lady True is on the verge of completing her life's work. And so why wouldn't she want both of her parents to be there? Which Angela asks, your father's here too? Lady True's response, he will be. Okay. Mysterious enough for you? We've, we've speculated a little bit on the show about it. Our Squidmaster General has offered up a very... Uh, compelling theory onto what's going on there. It there seemed to be enough information in this episode that maybe eliminates that theory, but I'm not willing to bet 100% that Lady True is being 100% honest with Angela about everything that's going on. So I still think there's some wiggle room. Brian, your theory is not dead yet, my friend. 
I, I think there's I think there's still some room to play in there. So so hold on to your hold on to your your seats, okay? In case you don't know what Brian's theory is, we're we're talking about is that the love child that Eddie seemingly kills on VVN Day in front of Doctor Manhattan, or if Brian's theory is true, and I suspected this, I bought into this as well too, that Doctor Manhattan saves that child, and she considers Doctor Manhattan her father. Time, time will tell. Time will tell. All right, now we go to Lori being held by the Seventh Cavalry, and she sees all the true tech. Whether it's stolen is is of some question. Are are the Seventh Cavalry members stealing true tech, or are they somehow being supported by her in order to kind of help bring about the end of things? Like we find out in a little bit later that that Will went to Lady True because he needed her resources to end to end Cyclops, to end the 7th Cavalry, is part of their plan to supply them with the tech they need to eventually destroy themselves? Or is it just stolen tech? Not sure yet. I don't, I don't want to read too much into that, okay? But here's where we get our, our big moment with, with Laurie and Senator Keene, where uh, he's about to go and do his, uh, you know, his monologuing and, and, and share his evil plan for the world. And Laurie doesn't want to hear about it. You know, she's just so sick of all this shit. She's, you know, this is, this is Gene Smart being an excellent actress and just completely killing the scene by just showing how worn, out, worn down and beaten down by this, this superhero life Laurie is and, and these, these postulating villains who, who preen and dance about with their, you know, global nonsense. And she's just sick of all of it. Because, mostly because she thinks she knows. You know, Lori, Lori's like, there's nothing here that's going to surprise me. So Lori's, Lori's sick of it, and she thinks she knows exactly what Keen is up to and his, his 7th Cavalry racist cronies. And it's this world that we talked about where, where cops, good guys and bad guys, are all in masks, and nobody knows the difference. And, and Joe Keen's going to be the president and, and talk about it. But that's not what's going to happen, because just like... like the widow Crawford told us they have bigger plans in mind than that. So now we look at this technology in the scene. Now we saw them messing with portals before, but what if portals isn't really what they're doing here? What if that's just part of the plan? Because as Senator Keen tells us, he's not interested in being the most powerful racist in all the world. He gives us a line about how hard it is to be a white man in this new world, he said, so he's decided that he wants to go and try and be a blue one, which tells me that perhaps what they're really building is an intrinsic field generator. And, Dr. and Senator Keene's about to make, try to make himself a new Dr. Manhattan. I think that's pretty obvious, by the way. He says he wants to be a blue man, by the way. I'm, that's not like I pulled the layers of that onion apart for you guys. He pretty much says it right there. Keene confesses his plan to become Dr. Manhattan, the new Dr. Manhattan. He wants to be the most powerful being on the planet. And that's not going to be good. 7th Cavalry with their own Dr. Manhattan or more than one 7th Cavalry person as Dr. Manhattan, an entire army of Dr. Manhattans, perhaps. That seems like a way for the world to end real quick. Now we go back to Lady True's facility, and we are at the, uh, the, the... We're kind of in the final countdown phase of the Millennium Clock being activated. You know, the Millennium Clock, much like the Doomsday Clock in the comic book, just ticks ever closer to midnight. And that uh, that's that's... Obviously, that's the obvious parallel 
right there between the, car, the graphic novel. Lady True's giving a speech. She's not telling anybody what this thing's for yet. We still don't know what the Millennium Clock is supposed to do. But in her speech, she talks a lot about several things that come up that are interesting. One thing she mentions is microfusion spacecraft. Sounds like a really great way to get Adrian Veidt to Europa and drop him off and leave him there. Is that the case? Is this a misdirect? Not so sure, but it seems more and more plausible that Lady True is the one responsible for the imprisonment of Ozymandias because she needed him out of the way. True's speech also goes on, and she mentions the failure of nostalgia. You know, she wanted people to be able to take nostalgia to confront their trauma so that they could move past it and become better people, to evolve into better people. But instead, she mentioned, she, she, True tells us that people became fixated by experiencing their traumas over and over again so they could never become better people. I am going to try really, really hard to get that sound clip included into the show because uh, it was really, really speaks a lot about, about uh, humanity in general, but specifically our, our characters and the way their traumas have affected them. Again, like legacy is a major theme of the show, trauma is a major theme of the show. All right, so Angela, getting sick of listening to that speech, she's going to go find Will. She follows the tube into that room because that's what we've been led to believe, right? Will's in that room. Will's the one who's helping cleanse her system of, of the nostalgia, right? She breaks down the door, finds out she's hooked up to an elephant. That's pretty crazy, right? You know, uh, so I'm trying to figure... <laughs> I've talked to a couple of people about the elephant. We're not quite sure what it means. Online's not quite sure what it means. Uh, it's possible that elephants are an important part of the... Of ju they're just part of the treatment because, I mean, I guess if you believe that old, that old adage about elephants, that they never forget anything, that perhaps there's something in their uh, cerebral cortex that's really good for helping... Uh, cleanse and, re and restore another person's cerebral cortex. I, you know, I'm speculating on that. I don't know. For all we know, we're going to find out Will turned himself into an elephant. I have no idea. Angela, uh, seeing herself hooked up to an elephant, rips that tube right out of her arm, and that triggers another memory. This time back, again, we're back in Saigon. And uh, June, her grandma has come to, come to find her. She had lost touch with her son. She wasn't happy with him being in the military, with him going off to move to Vietnam. So they hadn't talked in a long time. Uh, when June had some medical issues come up, she tried to reach out and found out that her son was dead. And she found out that he had a wife and that they had a, uh, they had a child. So June's come to get Angela and take her home. They go out to Burger, Burger and Borst, which is a cool reference to the comic. You see it in the opening scene as well, but I did want to mention Burger and Borst uh, as a fun little uh, nod and wink to the events of the graphic novel. Burger and Borst is a restaurant that shows up in the final issue after Ozymandias' plan has worked and because it, it, you know because burgers and borst is pretty much like the equivalent of the Soviet and the United States coming together. So it it, it makes a certain amount of sense to see this kind of a burger and borst fast food chain that now spreads across the world as the United States and Russia are, are all harmonious and buddy buddy with each other. So that's where June takes Angela and they're eating, they're discussing, and Angela's talking more about. Uh, how she wants to watch Sister Night. They talk about Sister Night, and they mention, June mentions how much she liked that movie, and she's going to let Angela watch it. So Angela's really excited to go off with her grandmother. Now, before I get too far away from things, I want to get back, let me go back to that Sister Night thing real quick, because there's a little bit more that I wanted to tell you about after, after we talked some more about this episode. 
So again, I'm going to read right from the memo here from Agent Pete. He says, quote, I placed a call to a certain movie theater in New York, the one that employed William Reeves back in 1975. This is where the executors of Nelson Gardner's estate presented Mr. Reeves with Gardner's will. There's a reference to this on, in the previous PDPD entries for episode six, where, where Nelson Gardner attempts to apologize to Will for not helping him and for not believing him. And he leaves, he leaves Will his estate, his entire fortune. We don't know if Will's, what Will's done with that or if perhaps he's, he's done, you know, it's reasonable to believe that's how he's funded his crusade against Cyclops. It's also possible to believe that's how he became in, invested in, in Lady True and her work. We'll have to see how that plays out. All right, now going back to the memo. Quote, It turns out Mr. Reeves bought that movie theater one year later, and he's been showing Sister Night every Sunday at midnight since 2017. The same year, Detective Ibar decided to put on the mask of her childhood hero to fight crime. That's pretty interesting, right? Pretty interesting. I also did want to mention, too, because uh, you, you see a little bit about Sister Night, the nun with the motherfucking gun, Colt 45 and a whip of nickel-plated rosary beads. This is Angela's costume to a T right here. I mean, this is, this is insanely hilarious in a lot of ways. Also on the Sister Night front, too, is we also get very cool quips from Sister Night in this memo. Quote, the devil created the problem of evil. God created me to solve it, end quote. And then another good one. Quote, you know why Jesus wants you to turn the other cheek? So I can punch that one, too, end quote. I want to see this movie. It sounds fucking awesome. All right, let's get off of this. These, these little PDPD entries are awesome. They're very, very good. And th this one in particular I thought was fascinating. All right, so Angela and June are going to head off. They're going to go back to Tulsa. But if you've been paying attention, we know that Angela doesn't ever leave. And why not? Because just as they're getting in the cab to, to go to the airport and fly away, June has a heart attack and dies in the streets of Saigon leaving Angela again an orphan. Again, a family member dies in front of her. And there's that, that, that trauma just coming through. This is why Angela, you know, doesn't, you know, at the beginning of the show, she says she doesn't have any family. She keeps watching them die in front of her. Why would she think she has any family anywhere? All right, that snaps Angela back to, back to real life, back to, back to the present. And uh, she makes her way to a room in Lady True's facility. It has a big, giant hologram globey thing. And she gets to spin around and she push on a location and what pops up above the globe is a video uh, image of the recordings that people make when they're in those Manhattan booths, when they're calling Dr. Manhattan on Mars and asking him, for their, asking him to help them with their problems. Again, this, this lends, leads into what we were talking about previously about the notion that uh, religion in this world may be gone because uh, God has clearly been replaced by Dr. Manhattan. And... These are all the unanswered prayers of the people. And you, you see through the images, I mean, it's people of all walks of life all around the globe. And um, eventually Angela finds Lori's phone call from, the, from, the episode, from episode two. And that's when Lady True makes her presence known. And they have a little back and forth about the unanswered prayers, the, the, the things that people ask for, for Dr. Manhattan to solve for them. And that's when Lady True gives us the bombshell. True knows that Manhattan isn't on Mars. He is, in fact, in Tulsa and is pretending to be a human being. 
none of this surprises Angela. Lady True then tells Angela about how the 7th Cavalry has a plan to destroy him and then become him. And so despite the fact that Angela doesn't want to hear it, Lady True is in fact there to save humanity. From the 7th Cavalry, who now wants to be powered by Dr. Manhattan. If there's any bit of news in there that does surprise Angela, it's the fact that the 7th Cavalry seems to know all this at the same time. So Angela leaves for home, has a confrontation with Pirate Jenny and Red Scare, who are there to arrest her. And she plows right through their car because <laughs> she has to get home. And that's when everything starts to fall into place with, with Cal and his mystery and the, the amnesia. It's strongly hinted at as it was in this episode. I, you know, I think, they, I think they still played their hand pretty well in the previous episodes of the series of keeping Cal's importance fairly quiet. Oh, what importance is that? Oh, well, that's when uh, Angela decides to smack him in the head with a hammer and then uh, pry her fingers into a skull and rip out the hydrogen symbol from his forehead. And that's when a blue glow begins to emanate from the head wound that Angela's just inflicted on Cal. And we realize that he's Dr. Manhattan, and he's been with us all along. And now the 7th Cavalry's come to get him. I feel like that's going to be really hard. <laughs> he is Dr. Manhattan, after all. But Dr. Manhattan works on a different level than, than all of us. As a man who doesn't experience time the same way that we do, now that he's able to access his powers again, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of this shakes out. And we're going to get a lot of that information in the next episode, episode eight coming this weekend. Two episodes left in this series. It's interesting also, uh, we sh I, do, I do want to mention real quickly that before she smacks Cal in the head with a hammer, she tells him that, quote, it's time to come out of the tunnel, end quote, which would seem to be like it's supposed to be like some kind of trigger that, that's supposed to help awaken him. We'll, we'll see what that all means later. I think we're going to get some more explanation next week. And then right before she hits him in the head, she calls him John, which if you weren't paying attention by then, I think now you know that, that oh, oh, I'd like to get partial credit for knowing that something was going on with Calvin. I did not suspect that he was Dr. Manhattan, but I like the twist. I want to see more of where this goes next week because we're going to see, as, as the trailer for next week's show indicated, we are going to get that, that meeting between that first meeting between Angela and Dr. Manhattan. And uh, it looks like it should be, should be pretty interesting. And there's also the ominous words that Dr. Manhattan says in that trailer of, uh, you can't save me, but you're going to try anyways. And that's all insane. It's all ramping up. Everything's on the board now. Everything's moving in, in one direction here. And we got a lot to figure out and a lot to get to still. Still... I feel I'm starting to get a little nervous because you know two episodes left and it is it is HBO so we there's a lot of show in those in those two episodes you know and maybe maybe one or two episodes run a little bit longer to give us a little bit more information but there's a lot to get to there's a lot to process still I still don't know anything about Lube Man we haven't seen the sight of Lube Man in you know weeks is Lube Man gonna save the day there were tons of rumors about a new Night Owl as well those all seem to be completely fictitious will Ozymandias escape? Will he help or hinder Lady True's plans? Supposedly Lady True's on the side of Will Reeves, and that's the side that's going to see the end of the 7th Cav and, and the end of Cyclops, finally. 
Is she playing level with us? Is there more going on there? Is she more about finding her father? Is, is, is her father Dr. Manhattan? Is she trying to bring back Eddie Blake for some reason? How is that, if, if, if Eddie Blake is her father, how does that connect with, with uh, Lori Blake? Like how, you know, there's, there's so much to get to still. Two weeks left. We're, we're racing to the, dead, to the end of the series, and um, I'm excited. I can't tell you how excited I am. Manhattan's on the board. Things are going to change. It's going to get interesting. What's Looking Glass going to do? I can't even begin to, to answer all these questions. I don't want to. I just want to sit there and watch the show. If I forgot anything, please tell me, because it's possible that I have. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's wrap it up, okay, folks? Thank you so much for listening. Um, I appreciate it immensely that you guys take the time and listen to the show. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy making it. If you get a chance, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and maybe write us a five-star review. Small podcasts like this need all the help we can get. And you guys writing reviews and subscribing, uh, they help get us on, on uh, ranking lists on, on, on Apple and stuff like that. So it, it, it does help a ton. And please share the show with your friends on social media. We are at TomCast underscore podcast on Twitter at the TomCast underscore podcast on Instagram. You can email TomCastPopCast at gmail.com. And you can join Pophead Nation, patreon.com forward slash TomCastPopCast. Thank you so much to our current Patreons, the Aspen Hill Chody, and the Squidmaster General, Brian Broussard. We, uh, we got big plans for our Patreons. New, new special Patreon, tier, tier one level. Patreons are going to get a special episode later this month. And I can't wait to record that for you guys. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back very, very soon. Uh, we're going to have the next episode of The Mandalorian. And then, hopefully, the next episode of Watchmen will come quickly after that. And then, hopefully, Roger's back. We have tentative plans. We're hoping to get together next week. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. I love, all you. I love you all. Ciao, babes. Jane told me I was tempting fate by sending you down to Tulsa. But for reasons that will soon become obvious, I... Oh, resist. Jesus, please don't. What? Talk me through your fucking plan. Let me guess. When you were just a boy, your father put you on his knee and told you that you'd been born into the order of the Cyclops and that it was your legacy to grow up and be the most powerful racist fuck in the nation. That's not at all what happened. I'm tired, Joe. I'm tired of all the... Silliness. You want me to ask you why I'm strapped to a chair in an abandoned J.C. Penny or what that cage is for? Fine. Just know that I don't give a shit. Oh, you'll give a shit about this, Lori. You of all people. You're wrong about Cyclops. We're not racist. We're about restoring balance in those times when our country forgets the principles upon which it was founded. Because the scales have tipped way too far. And it is extremely difficult to be a white man in America right now. So I'm thinking, I might try being a blue one. We're not gonna be fucking sunk this year! We're the Stanley Cup champions!